Welcome to Bethel Cleveland's Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy today's message. For more information on this podcast or how to get connected, go to BethelCleveland.com. All right, well, hey, did you bring your Bibles today? Because we're going to be flipping through uh, 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 quite a few references, if I can get through it. Um, we're going to go turbo speed because I feel like it's 11 o'clock and I want to get through everything. So here we go. We're going to dig into uh, back into our series of Flourish. And last week, I, I feel like it's important to remember that Pastor Steve delivered what he called a clarification Sunday. It was a message centered on who we are and where we're going. And I think those are very important. It's like the state of the nation, but for Bethel Cleveland Church to kind of hear about who are we Where are we going? What does that look like in this specific season of our life? Because I think everybody in the world is looking for clear direction right now. They're looking for a clear purpose, a clear vision, because we're living in a sea of just vague, gray ambiguity. We we, we don't really have a lot of absolute truths in our culture right now. So, So as the body of Christ in the church, we're looking for those. And I think that last week, I don't know about you, but I was really encouraged because what I'm looking for when I hear about who we are and where we're going, I want to hear that we're a church that believes that God speaks. I want to hear that we're a church that believes that when he speaks, we can prophesy that to others, that we can speak out and see things, our cities transformed and our families, that, that we are empowered in this body of Christ to raise up our voices and to bring heaven to earth. You know, a lot of people believe that God is far off and distant, and here at Bethel Cleveland, we believe that he is closer than your breath. We don't know everything that's going on in your life, but God is interwoven into everything that you're going through today, and I just pray that God would encourage you and uplift you today, that whatever it is that's happening, you are not in this alone. You are not pressing forward into a a sea of nothingness or no purpose. God is with you. And what you're putting your hand to right now, he is working alongside you doing. Amen. I don't know if that's encouraging to you. It's very encouraging to me. Um, My first song lab in 2021, I went down to um, New Orleans and I was writing with a bunch of people. And that was uh, when we had first written Matchless. Do you remember Matchless, guys? Do you know that we wrote that play in two weeks and we did it in six weeks? That was insane. I feel like the team around me now would just like go bananas if that's what we did again. (laughs) But somehow we did it. We accomplished it. And I was down there in New Orleans and one of the uh, songwriters came up and said, Jay, you've got a lot going on right now. And, And I say yes, because I didn't want to confess that I hadn't actually finished writing the play before we started announcing it. And I said, yes, yes. I feel pressure. And she said, the Lord is working alongside you right now in everything that you're doing, and he will work it out for the good of his kingdom. And something about that word, you know, you could have somebody come up and and well-wish and say, hey, Joel, it's going to be really good in your life. Things are going to be okay. And you can feel warm and you can feel encouraged. But when somebody comes armed with the power of the Holy Spirit, with a word that comes from heaven, a phrase that's spoken in the natural, a phrase that just means nothing or something to everybody, it's just like, hey, thank you. That phrase alone can hold a a ton of weight. It can hold thousands of pounds of, of validity to you. Why? Because it came from heaven. And when God speaks it, the truth pierces our soul. It says in the word that the word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing the flesh and the spirit and the soul. No one's going to be. I love you. Thank you for clapping. So today I want to talk about um, 
How do we flourish, though, in truth? Because I find myself being pulled to the basics more and more often. And when I say basics, I mean foundational, right? Because that's what we're looking for right now. If you keep adding on top, you ever play Jenga with your kids? My son loves that game, and he is just wicked good at it. It's very frightening. He always goes through the spot in the tower that's the most vulnerable, and somehow he yanks it out, and then it's impossible to win. That's not what we want here. We don't want to build on top of a thin, narrow foundation as good as my son is pulling that out. We don't want to have a narrow foundation that keeps getting taller and taller and taller. It's appropriate. It's right in seasons of great transition, in seasons of great calamity and pressure to look at the foundations and to stir them up. So today I want to talk to you about flourishing in truth in this chapter, in this season. So in this headspace, I have a very true joke that I heard recently about the differences between men and women. I'm sorry if that's controversial, but you're different. Look at a man and look at a man, look at a man and a woman. Look at a man and a woman next to you. And say, you look, you look kind of different than me. And that's okay. That's good. So in that place, here's my joke. <laughs> so a language, a language instructor was explaining her class that like French nouns, unlike English, counterparts are grammatically designed to be masculine or feminine. So things like chalk or pencil have a gender association, and the English words, they're neutral. So a student raised her hand and said, what gender is a computer? So the teacher wasn't really certain about this, so she divided the class into two groups, guys and girls, and asked them to give a couple of reasons for the recommendation on whether computers should be masculine or feminine. So this is what they came up with, and it's, my, it's amazing. So the men came up, and they said that computers should definitely be referred to as feminine because no one but their creator understands their internal logic. <laughs> the native language they use to communicate with other computers is incomprehensible to everyone else. Even your smallest mistakes are stored in long-term memory. <laughs> and as, as soon as you make a commitment to one, you find yourself spending half your paycheck on accessories. <laughs> the men walked and they dropped the mic and said, boom, roasted. Women are computers. But the women came forward and as they typically do, they win a lot. So the first one, you know, I'm gonna skip. You can read it later online if you want. But the second one is they have a lot of data, but they're still clueless. That's why men are like computers. They're supposed to solve your problems, but half the time, they are the problem. And as soon as you commit to one, you realize that if you had waited a little longer, you could have had a better model. <laughs> <laughs> it feels a little true, doesn't it? That is a little true, just a little bit. You can admit that it's true, just a little bit. Ah, oh, feels very true to me. Okay, um, open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter four. I wanna talk to you today uh, about first your divine calling in Christ. So let's go with Ephesians 4.1, read along with me. It says, therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, 
with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another, being diligent to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Passion says, with tender humility and quiet patience, always demonstrate gentleness and generous love toward one another, especially those who try your patience. Um, going on verse four, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all, through all, and in all. This chapter continues to unfold with Paul talking about the function of the fivefold ministry given to the church. And the best example that helps me remember the fivefold is one I got when I was in ministry school. They said, okay, here's the fivefold. The thumb is the apostle. The prophet is the pointer finger. I mean, sorry, I'll put my thumb down for that. I'll keep, I'll leave it there. I don't want you to read between the lines and just put the, that finger up. But the evangelist is the middle finger. You see it right there. It goes longer than the others on most hands. I think it's almost equal with mine. And then the next finger is uh, the pastor, and that's because it's a ring finger married to the church. And the pinky is the teacher. And it's not because it's the littlest and most insignificant. It's, it's because without it, you're gonna have a hard time picking stuff up. You're gonna have a hard time learning things without this pinky. So Paul's talking about the fivefold. And in verse 14, when the fivefold's in, in full expression within the body of Christ, we get this result outlined in verse 14. It said, as a result, we're no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of people, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head that is Christ, from whom the whole body being held, fitted together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building of itself in love. How do we flourish in truth? In two ways, we abide in the vine and live in truth, and we speak the truth in love. How many of you uh, heard that phrase in church growing up? I say this in love. I don't know, but my memory's just a little flawed, but when people said that, they usually weren't gonna say something very loving <laughs> after that phrase. It was usually a way of saying, I'm gonna say this in love. How far back do I go? I say this in love, but Sister Alberta, I saw your ankle on the platform. You're gonna have to lower that skirt. <laughs> what kind of place do you think this is? So we've got that phrase, that phrase, I say this in love, appropriated from scripture that people have used as a tool to put out things that don't line up with the intention, that don't line up with what God was saying there, right? We see that today echoed again. How many of you guys have heard this phrase? I'm just being real. Let me be real with all of you from that phrase. If that's your real, then you need to get delivered. You don't need to say, I'm just trying to be real. If that's your real, you need to spend some time with the Lord and allow him to transform you. You know, just being real shouldn't be a reflection of our worst qualities. Just being real should be a reflection of our authenticity in Christ and who we are in him, our identity in him, right? So if I'm being real, then the things about me that the Lord is working on and transforming can continue to be in better alignment with his word, his will, and his ways. And so when I'm being real, I'm seated with Christ in heavenly places and the Lord is transforming those fleshly things out of me. Yes? Yes? 
I hope. <laughs> but there's another phrase today that's um, really kind of popular. I hear it a lot. It said, I'm just being my authentic self. Sorry about the tone, but it has to be said that way. I'm just being my authentic self. And I feel like the boundaries that you're putting up around me are inhibiting me from being my authentic self. So here's the thing. We've got all three of these phrases kind of living in the same neighborhood. Where am I going with this? You see, with the authentic self piece, people look at the boundaries that you place up, right? So let, let's say that you walk into this church, or let's, let's take, it up a, uh, take it up a couple steps. You walk into, I don't know, the White House, and you're in the Oval Office. Is your behavior going to adjust according to the rules around you? Yes, absolutely. You're not even getting into that room unless you go through a whole security check and you're, you're guided, you're dressed a certain way. There's a bunch of boundaries. Why? It's, for, it's not necessarily even for the respect of the leader as much as it is respect for the office because the office of president represents the will of the people. <laughs> and, it, and it, you know, it's supposed to. Um, <laughs> So when you look at that, it's not just representative of the person sitting there. It's representative of, of, of the will of so many other people. So when we, when we come into a place where we're like, okay, I'm in this church. I feel like I can say whatever I want, or I feel like it's okay. I have all, I'm free in Christ. I can, I can curse. I can, I, can, I can drink. I can do all these things that I want to do because I'm free in Christ. But if you walk into this house and you have a flask and I see it, Pastoral care team is coming for you. Because we don't do that here. <laughs> so the whole authentic self thing that says, I gotta be myself no matter what the circumstance, no matter what, is actually a way of saying that I am God in my life, in my circumstances, and I will not yield to the environment around me. I will be myself. The truth is, we're not God. And God placed us in the earth to be the salt of the earth. So we need to learn how to fit into the rhythms of the earth, but not be of it. We are in it, but we're not of it, right? So we've got to learn how to represent Christ in every circumstance. And when you begin to understand that, boundaries are good. It's just like when you're driving alongside of a cliff, there is a roadblock there. It's not there because it's trying to inhibit your freedom. That roadblock is there. So if you're not paying attention because you're texting and driving or you're scrolling rolls on Instagram, that you don't fall off the side of the cliff. The boundaries there to save you. And in your marriage, there may be boundaries in place. Like I'm not driving alone with another woman. I'm just not doing it. It's not because I think I'm irresistible. <laughs> it's not because I think I'm hot stuff that nobody can resist. I mean, I thought that was Ashley, but it was Bob Wagaman. So disappointed. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I love you, Bob, too. Okay. Those boundaries are in place, not because I, I, I feel like so inhibited. It's because I'm protecting my, my, that relationship. My connection with my wife is more important to me than getting somewhere quicker or more easier or driving with a friend who happens to be a woman. I'm just not going to do it because it's a boundary in my life because I want to protect the, the sacred bond that we have and I, and I want to look a certain way. If I'm going to walk around and preach the gospel of Christ, you better believe that I'm representing him not just here but in my personal life. And when people see me driving down the road, I don't have the luxury and neither do you of doing whatever it is we feel like doing not when we represent Jesus to the earth not when we represent who he is come on 
I read that it's time to grow up. It is. It's time for us to grow up because the world is looking for something real. They're looking for believers who are not just operating in, in kind of like the, the, the clicky, cliche, Christianese language bubble. They're looking for people who actually know God. And what's the fruit of knowing God? It's people who spend time with the Lord. That It said that people could tell, like the apostles, that people knew that they had been with Jesus. They could tell. People should know that we've been with him. And does that mean sometimes I'm going to have boundaries or restrictions in my life that maybe other people think is religion or, or that I'm just trying to be a control freak? Maybe, sorry, don't care. I'm representing the Lord and I'm going to do what he tells me to do, right? Come on. So you can be your authentic self. Just make it in Christ. You can be real. Just make it in alignment with the kind of values that... that that you would want to be when you reach your full level of maturity, right? I think that we kind of, I'm experiencing this. I'm in my late 30s. I'm 36 now. And um, officially three years older than, well, not technically, but, you know, I always, when I turned 33, I was like, well, that was the year that Jesus was crucified. And so I've lived beyond that now, and he has too. Um, But I'm beginning to notice, like, you know, the things that we think about, like, you know, how many 20-year-olds do I have here? Any young adults wave at me if you're here 25 and under. Let me see you. You know, let me tell you something that nobody told me, or maybe if they did, I just wasn't listening because I thought I knew it already. So I'm going to repeat it again to you. Guys, there is not some kind of pie-in-the-sky future version of yourself that is naturally just going to happen. The only way we become more like Christ is that we intentionally decide to align our lives with him. You're not, going to, you're not going to grow up one day and just all of a sudden exhibit the fruit of the Spirit without being planted in, and, and rooted in the ground and the soil of the kingdom without being attached to the vine. You're not going to just naturally become more peaceful, loving, or joyful as time goes on if you're not connected with Him. So my point is, don't wait until you're in your 30s, your 40s, and your 50s to figure out that tomorrow actually never comes, that today is the time where you align your life with the Lord and where you connect and you find Him. Don't wait. Find him now. All of these phrases that we try to use to create roadblocks that, that kind of lead us towards the truth, they're helpful, but they, but they all kind of fall short of what we're really invited into. You see, the road and the markers alongside it are not necessarily greater than the destination of where you're going in Christ. See, the boundaries keep you on track. The road leads you there. But, but it's, it's about, in the process, the na- on that narrow road, whittles things down from you more than it adds to you. You'll find that you carry less the closer that you get to him on that road. And it's not a terrible thing. It's a beautiful thing. I remember feeling like, I have to give up this or this or this. But as you begin to move down that road towards truth, who is truth? It's Jesus. Notice I said, who, not what. As we move towards him, you'll find that you carry less and less. And all of a sudden, the process of your life isn't necessarily about external accomplishments that you may do for the Lord. Those are things that you pass on the road, but that he is the destination and the purpose of our life, and that he really is enough. He satisfies us in a way that nothing, accomplishment will never do, success will never do. Whatever it is your dream is in this life, it may satisfy you for a moment, but it is not sustaining. Jesus is the only one. He's the only one. Hallelujah. So who is the first person to speak the truth in love? 
in Genesis 1, <laughs> God the Father was hovering over the space of the deep. Close your eyes for a second. I want you to picture this. Don't worry, I won't keep them closed for some of you to fall asleep. I know some of us, if you close your eyes for two minutes, it's over. Just keep them closed for a minute. I want you to picture that this blackness is all that there is. Formless and void. Nothing. And then when he spoke, let there be light. You can open your eyes. A catalytic series of events unfolded and light was introduced to the dark and formless void that was our planet. And the sound of those words uttered from the mouth of the uncreated God was the first physical revelation to the earth of Jesus. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning and all things came into being through him and apart from him, not even one thing came into being that has come into being. So Jesus came out of the mouth of God and get this, the structure of Genesis 1 is in the form of a Hebraic poem. So it's kind of possible that the first words that brought the earth into being were sung. That Jesus was the singing word out of the mouth of God. You know, we're told in Ephesians 4 to speak the truth and love to one another. And I love it that God doesn't ask us to do anything that he hasn't already done. We're, instruct, we're instructed to speak the truth in love, but at the beginning, God spoke the truth. Jesus himself in love. You know, this is something that's confusing to people, right? Because um, we have a more Greek mindset. We like to see kindness or quirkiness and patience as, as things that we carry around like a bag, something that we carry, right? But a Hebraic mindset sees these qualities as something that originates from who the person is. So not something I have, but something I am. God is love. Nothing exists apart from him. He isn't just loving. He is love. I know you've heard this before, but let the Holy Spirit connect heart and mind. Let the revelation travel. That all the qualities of his goodness that we see in the earth, all the, uh, every, every conversation you have with unbelievers who say that, you know, there's love in families and, and God isn't the only place where love is. Well, get this. God didn't create love. He always has been love. This is important because if God created or possessed love, then it meant he had the capacity to operate outside of it. It suggests that there was a time that love did not exist, that love is not something he is, but something that he has. And why does this matter? Because if we're, if we're gonna speak transformative truth in and through his love, then we have to allow this information, this revelation, to make that revelatory journey into our heart. We need the revelation that God is truth. Truth is not just what really happened in a given circumstance. Truth is not the loudest voice in the room. It's not the most unbiased account of how a situation unraveled. It's not the most virtuous opinion. It's not something only proved by the scientific method. I have to. Scientific method, I wasn't going to do this, but I'm going to. The scientific method, you can't even prove something like evolution by its very design. You can't, because the method requires repetition. You have to be able to observe, question, hypothesize, experiment, conclude, document results, and repeat. And you know, this whole Big Bang theory, how come no one can duplicate it? 
How come no one can do it again? You know, geneticists, they can split genes, but they can't make them from nothing. So the very theory that they say disproves God cannot be proven that their very theory they're living their lives on is true. It's a cyclical, torrential, terrible drain of, of lies. The very theory they say disproves God can't literally be used to prove them or disprove them. Oh my gosh. If this is true, then how come they can't find any link or proof that evolution has happened? Oh. They haven't found it. It's not been found yet. It doesn't exist. Listen, if this was so true, and this is causing people to say, oh, I only believe the scientific method, and so I can't believe in God. Well, then let me tell you something, Sharon. There is... <laughs> I said Sharon, not Karen. Okay, let me tell you something, Sharon. Then you're gonna have a, a terrible time in life because there's things about the human experience that you can't put to a test tube and try. You can't prove love, you can't prove fear. You can't even, they don't even know what fear is. They can just track the results. There's no way to explain it. Emotions, moral, morality, reason and purpose. None of those things can be proved in a vial. And let's be honest, the people who say that, what are you proving in your life by the scientific method? I'm impressed that you know it, but you're not proving anything. So the very like thing that they're using to say, I doubt existence in God. The very thing that they're using to say, well, you can't prove that God is real. It's a total farce. They don't even live by that. Why? Because humanism, belief in evolution, all that stuff, it is a religion because you have to have faith in it because there's no proof. None. So we're looking... We're looking at some, you know, it's very popular now. I think everybody's got some deconstructing Christian in their, in their feed. And, you know, I have the deepest level of compassion for, the, for, for those who are deconstructing in their faith because they go on this, this humanistic road where they, they talk through everything. And even if you talk for two to three hours, it doesn't actually land anywhere because it's all based on emotion, right? Emotions are God, how I feel about something. I mean, I saw this uh, former pastor the other day on Instagram talking and he said, like, I, I just couldn't make myself want to read the Bible. And I couldn't make myself want to, to, to spend time with the Lord every day. And you're supposed to do that. I just never really got anything. So I stopped lying to myself and I was honest about how I felt. I want to be like, well, listen to me, my friend, my sweet little buttercup. There, <laughs> your feelings are not God. And because you feel something isn't true doesn't mean that it's not. Hmm? Just because you feel something's off. How many of you have ever had feelings that, that weren't true? That, that you went through your situation, your circumstance? Most of you were just hungry. You were enraged. And then your, your emotions, they came back and you're like, oh, I guess I was being a little unreasonable. So why are we making our emotions God? Let me tell you something. Emotions are terrible at driving the car of your life. They make good passengers, but they just are. You're going to be angry. You're going to be upset. You're going to be sad. That's all part of the human experience. But when they drive us and we say, oh, no, my drives define, my, define who I am. My drives are my identity. Then you have just done something that will cause a, a, a fracture in your spirituality because you've just aligned your identity with your subjective feelings instead of the reality of who God is and says he is. All right? 
Uh, so the truth, the truth, I'm talking about the Lord because he is the truth. Think about that for a second. There is nothing happening in this earth, in this whole entire world, everything you've ever experienced originated in the mind of God. The way that you're built, the way your bodies were built, the way you think, the structure of your life, all of it, he's, he's been in it. He is truth. There's not one thing in the earth he doesn't know about. He's the origin of it all. We came out of his mouth. Let that sink in. So everyone's on this quest for truth. But what do you do when the revelation hits that truth isn't a fact, it's a person? James 1.18, it reads, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. We were birthed through the word of truth, through Jesus, and his voice still resonates in the universe. And the existence of all of it is sustained by the sound of his word reverberating in the cosmos. Did you get this? Did you know the universe is still expanding? Right? So like it says in Isaiah, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. God spoke the word, Jesus, and it is still expanding in the universe today. There is not a boundary that can hold his word back. He spoke it at the beginning of creation and the whole universe is still responding to it, still expanding. Will it ever stop? Will the universe ever stop expanding as long as the word of the Lord sustains in the universe? I don't believe it will. And so we see the culmination of what he talks about in Revelation with his missional plan for the earth. I don't believe it will end because when God speaks, it goes on forever. And so the universe is just going to keep expanding as the word of the Lord continues to fill this void of whatever it is outside of the universe into the spirit. <laughs> the word of the Lord will continue to go on. And it is true. It is truth. Science is just trying to catch up with what God already said. Mm. So we can flourish in truth because the gospel of Jesus in the word and the gospel is still as powerful today as it's ever been. Yes, it is. <laughs> yeah, man. I love you. <laughs> I want to talk to you. I'm going to get Joe up here because I'm going to bring it in for a landing because I got to hop up to Middleburg in a minute. But I talked about this maybe a couple months ago, but it was at the close of a service. So I want to talk about it again. So, how do we gauge the power of the gospel? Because as we've been talking about last week and who we are and where we're going, we believe that the Lord is wanting to reconnect discipleship and evangelism. That the Lord wants to see his church and body equipped with how to share their faith. And does, you know, we had Tommy Zito a few weeks ago and David Hogan as well. Does the script mean that's the only way? Well, no, but it's a great start. Because the Lord wants to teach us how to reconnect the compartmentalized boxes of our life. He wants it all. And the Western mindset separates things into their proper place and location. So that's why it's not because, I don't believe it's because we lack compassion or we don't love people. I think that we just kind of get into zones of what's happening in our life. And the Lord is wanting to say, I want to speak through all of those different circumstances and zones of your life. And I want them connected so that when you're walking, if I talk to you, if I whisper to you at the grocery store or when you're at the gym or whatever it is that you're doing, 
and I tell you something about somebody or I just make you aware that they're there, you can lead them to the Lord, you can prophesy, you can pray for them and see them get healed because at the end of the day, Bethel Cleveland is always going to be a house where people encounter God and are equipped and sent to bring heaven to earth. That's, that's all we're here for. We're a community, but we're not just a community of people who like to attend. I look across the room and I could start highlighting people and amazing things that they've done. I mean, Bob and Susan Wagaman, you probably don't know this, they, they planted a, a food pantry ministry. I think it was in Chicago. And now uh, there's thousands and thousands of people that, that benefit from what they started. You didn't know that about them. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> Rachel speak into power in all the places that God's given her a voice. I think it was, I don't know if I'm allowed to say where. Yeah, Homeland Security. Yes, in California, we caught her on a flight back from Reading and she was speaking um, out there. I mean, there are voices being raised up. I mean, obviously, Janet Porter. <laughs> this house has always been characterized by, it attracts people who are doing something in the world that understand that God speaks and that he awakens something in us that provokes a response and brings transformation everywhere that we go. And that legacy is gonna continue on and on and on. I see it in Vaughn and Sherry Knight and then the business that they're building and the countless lives transformed. Vaughn walked up to somebody in a Walmart in the middle of the night, gave him a job and led him to the Lord. That's just what he does. <laughs> it was a little bit of a longer thing, but you know, short version. <laughs> God is wanting to raise up this house. But sometimes I think the gospel, it's not that it loses its power. I think we get used to being in the Father's house. My son, Max, he doesn't, he doesn't like to move, which is tough for him, because I think I've moved him, what, like how many times we moved? Like four years in his life, four, something like that. He, his favorite house until our, our current house, and we, we lived in Parma in this 120-year-old house that had a little bit of everything on it. It had some bricks, stones, shingles. It was everything. <laughs> Um, and he loved it. He was the only kid, he was the only person in the house who got a bedroom all to himself. The girls had to share and obviously me and mom were down the hall. <laughs> so he had this whole big room to himself. And when he went downstairs uh, in the backyard, we had a fenced in backyard and there was this enormous uh, like evergreen tree that was just taller than the house. And he loved it because in the summertime he would go out there and be shaded. Didn't matter if it was raining or a thousand degrees, he could be under that tree. And he took shovels and they would dig and dig and dig and dig and dig and dig. And he loved it. He made huge messes. It was terrible. There was pebbles everywhere. But when we moved, he missed the house terribly, but I talked to him about it last week and he doesn't remember it anymore. He doesn't remember much about it. And it's not because he's got some kind of condition. He was like three, he was like two. If you have kids, you know. But my point is, it's really easy when we're in the house we're in and loving where we're living, that we forget the house we came from. And to recognize that who we are today and the behaviors and the drives and desire for the Lord and the things the Lord is doing in us would not exist if somebody did not share the gospel with you that the transformation in your life only exists because the word of God was proclaimed. We've got this unfortunate thing where we think that the gospel 
can be just lived out by our actions, that people will see our love and see the way that we operate and that somehow they'll get the gospel that way. Let me tell you something, you cannot lead someone to the Lord based on an abstract idea. You've got to tell them the gospel is verbal. If you don't speak it out, it doesn't matter how many nice things you do or say, they won't know. The gospel has to come forth in power. Paul talked about it. He said you didn't have fancy words or, or stage presence or charisma, but he came in the power of the gospel. And it transformed. It transformed the, the, the whole world basically because Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles. And God's missional purpose didn't stop when you got saved because it's about the nations and all the people of the nations becoming the vehicle for his gospel message that all might hear and have the chance to know him. So how do we flourish in truth? We learn how to speak the truth in love. How do we speak? We speak the truth when we evangelize. We speak the truth when we prophesy, when we, when we pray for healing in people's lives. We speak the truth through the, the works and things that we create, right? Like for me, that looks like songs. That looks like maybe books one day. All those things, we create vessels for the Lord to fill. Whatever you put your hand to is like a bowl in your hands that could hold the glory if you purposed it to. How do we speak the truth in love? We learn how to get our voice back. And when we talk about somebody, this is, I want this to come across as loving because I'm talking to myself too. We'll tell people that we're married. We'll tell people that we have kids. We'll tell people about our job. We'll tell people about where we're going on vacation. Sometimes before we'll share the gospel with them. And I want to argue that I believe the Lord is the center of your life and your world, let's promote that to something that comes to the table in conversation. Yeah? Would you stand up on your feet? I wanna pray for you today. Mm. Would you just close your eyes for a moment? God, thank you the truth isn't measured by the amount of people who believe it. Lord, I thank you, Father. Thank you that we can't edit the framework of the universe according to what we desire. You designed it all, and we yield to you. Put your hand over your heart. Father, in the name of Jesus, God, would you speak? Would you speak to every heart here today? Help us to live by your word and to respond with Holy Spirit-driven speech that we might flourish in you, flourish in truth. As I close, a couple weeks ago I had a dream. <laughs> I was in heaven. I was walking on the beach with Ashley, my wife, and Cindy, my mother-in-law. And Cindy was holding three asparagus in her hand, which was kind of weird. Well, actually not, because you know Bobby proofed. And um, she was holding the asparagus, and that means, I think I looked it up, it, it means flourishing, it means restoration, but it also means spiritual growth and healing. And other cultures believed it meant wealth and divine protection. And so I was talking to them on the beach 
about how we were gonna cover Sunday morning because Steve was out of town and I was going to Thailand with Joel. And we were talking about how we were gonna pay for it. And Joel said the brethren would pay for it, which turned into this big prophetic thing where Joel is actually in fact going to Thailand now, right? Working it out, <laughs> talking with them and that, that word brethren meant something. So after that dream, just close your eyes for a moment and just picture it. Me and Ashley, we flew. <laughs> we flew through uh, opalescent waters. It was kind of like one of those shells that gives off all those colors. And we wound up in a hallway, which was kind of weird. It was dark. It felt like a storage place. And it felt like the Lord said, this is an interdimensional hallway. <laughs> I, that's not, I'm not saying that's in Revelation, but it's what, it's what it said. <laughs> and the door opened and a book got tossed in. And someone came in with the book and I picked it up and the Lord said, this is Ashley's book. And I walked through that door into heaven and the dream concluded with um, Ashley looking over and all these people around her as they were rising up in, in glory. And she said, the time of the spirit has come. So I woke up and I told her about it. And, and when we got to the church the next morning, Larry Chumcha, our custodian prophet, <laughs> he came up to Ashley and said, so how's that book coming? And then he looked over at her and he said, he said, you know, Jesus said that he's gonna sit down right next to you and write that book with you. Mm. Listen, where are we landing? Flourish in truth. Guys, the time of the spirit has come. So Father, in the name of Jesus, I bless this congregation. God, I bless them to flourish in truth that the time of the spirit has come. Father, I pray that you would come in like a wave, that you would minister and that you would bless each one of them, Father, to flourish in you, to flourish in truth, to know how to speak the truth in love and the unique and specific and called ways that you've asked them to do it. Lord, I thank you, Father, that they have something to say and, and they have something to say in a way that nobody else could or ever will, that there's a, a message of the gospel in them, Father, that will be communicated in a way that will speak to the people around them. And so, Father, in the name of Jesus, I call that voice out. I call the voice out of every person here today to flourish in truth and that the gospel would roll off your tongue as easy as any conversation that you've ever had. Father, I pray that you would wake in our hearts, Lord, that we might know how to release your kingdom in this earth, that you would use us at Bethel Cleveland to be a first fruits of what you're pouring out in the earth. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to our Sermon of the Week. You can help us reach others by investing today at BethelCleveland.com slash give.